What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. Let's talk for a minute about one of my favorite ways to teach. While all teachers have a variety of ways to approach instruction, one of my favorites is the model of inquiry learning. Inquiry learning at its base is focused on teaching students how to learn. In an environment based in inquiry, we are not reciting facts and figures, nor are we checking off boxes in a standardized form. For me, one of the greatest benefits of inquiry learning is that it is student-centered, Using this model, students are asked to be an integral part of the learning process. No longer will students only sit and take in what the instructor has to offer. In an inquiry learning environment, they will be engaged both as learners and oftentimes as teachers. Ultimately, inquiry puts the onus on the student in the process of creating meaning. When using inquiry learning models, teachers must design learning experiences that allow students to examine, investigate, question, and reflect so that they become aware of their own learning styles, processes, and strategies. I'm sure at this point, most of you out there listening to Rachel's World are finding this all very interesting, but are now wondering how it applies to you. Well, I think it applies directly because if you have ever had a child in your life, then it's likely that you have been the recipient of questions. Why is the sky blue? Why do people get sick? Why can't I stay up past 10? If you have ever been in this situation, then you will have been at the forefront of an inquiry learning experience. You may just not have known what to call it. I find that inquiry is a natural state for learning. Think about almost any great invention or scientific discovery, and there will almost certainly be a problem behind it. Great inventors and scientists confronted these problems by asking questions and then using a variety of methods to discover a solution. This process used for centuries to create the world we now live in is the process of inquiry. As human beings, we naturally question, and then it's our natural inclination to work to find the answers to these questions. So here at Rachel's World, we advocate for inquiry learning. We say, bring on the questions, because it is just that kind of learning that is one of the right ways to nurture independent, actively engaged learners. We all know that books are just one way to tell a story, but off the top of the head, How many other ways can you think of? Librarian and author Amanda Hovius talks to Rachel today about transmedia storytelling, which is telling a story across multiple media like film, web series, computer games, theme park rides, and more. Amanda Hovius is a librarian with a background in public and academic libraries and is also a writer, consultant, and library educator. She is author of the book, Transmedia Storytelling, The Librarian's Guide. Here's Amanda and Rachel. We're talking with Amanda today. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I am very excited to talk with you today because I think this is 
a topic of expertise that you bring to the show that a lot of people don't understand. So let's start out with a definition. One of your expertise is, is transmedia storytelling. So tell us a little bit about what that is. Okay, well, first of all, the term was first um, coined by a media studies scholar named Henry Jenkins. Um, He is um, at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism currently. Uh, He first coined the term back in 2003, and he was observing what was going on between Hollywood and the gaming industry when he came up with this kind of definition. There was a collaboration going on. So he calls it a fictional story told across multiple media platforms. Um, each platform is, represents a story world, and each of those story worlds contributes to a much larger storytelling universe. So basically what he was describing was what we call transmedia franchises. And, um, and that's what most people are familiar with, even if you don't know that that's what it's called. Um, transmedia storytelling is something we all experience every day. So some of the big franchises out there, like Star Wars, um, we're all familiar with Star Wars or Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. Um, what these all have in common is that they have their storytelling universes told across multiple media platforms. So you have movies and books and video games, and um, sometimes you have conventions and theme park rides. Um, and the important part here is that the story expands. It doesn't just get retold from one platform to another, but over time, this, the, each platform helps expand upon the story with a, sort of a continuity. Um, the other aspect of that is that fans are really important for franchises. So um, the fans have to be able to participate in the story, and this is where we have interaction with, like, video games. Um, you know, Star Wars, like, it's a theme park theme park ride. Harry Potter has its own, like, world, wizarding world of Harry Potter at Universal Studios. Um, So a way for the the audience or fans to get in there and interact and participate in the story. And then what happens is they also want to contribute. So we have fan fiction, Um, fan contributions, like um, Star Wars has something called Wikipedia, which is like Wikipedia, but it's all, all things Star Wars. And so... Uh, fans who are experts on everything Star Wars contribute to this forum, so you can go there and learn every, everything you could possibly want about Star Wars. Uh, another type of franchise is um, Pokemon, and I'm bringing this up because it's so big in the news lately, this Pokemon Go game. Are you familiar with that? Very much familiar with it, and I, <laughs> I, ha- I have positive things to say about it, unlike some other people, so I'd love to hear your perspective. Well, first of all, Pokemon's been around a long time. Um, it's a video game franchise. And so Pokemon Go now is truly an example of transmedia, um, where the real world and the virtual world are actually colliding in order to play the game. So you can't really get more transmedia than that, where you're actually integrating platforms. You know, they're not necessarily separate anymore. We're integrating them. And so um, it, what it's doing, too, is it's getting... Um, People who are fans of it growing up, perhaps, as children, adults now who are reconnecting with Pokemon and then also introducing their children to it. So I think it's a good thing. Um, but it's another example of how franchises keep continue to expand over time. I love that sense of expansiveness. And I, I think sometimes that 
when we look at storytelling, sometimes we tend to focus on our traditional formats, like book formats. And when I talk to parents and adults, sometimes they, they say, oh, you know, I really wish they'd read the book. And, you know, they're watching the movies and playing the games. But this really does expand the storytelling in, in some very unique ways that in my estimation, and I believe you believe this too, that, that it increases a broad scope of literacies when we have it in all of these different platforms. So how is this kind of expansiveness, um, I, I guess, helping or making this experience with these stories much deeper than it would be if it was just in one kind of platform? Well, I think first of all, um, it helps to think about what is the connection between traditional literacy, which is really print literacy, like reading and writing, uh, which is really a technology, and we have to remember that print is also a technology. But what is that connection between traditional literacy and these newer literacies that are more digitally related? And the big connection there is critical literacy. And when I talk about critical literacy, um, you know, that term is used in a number of different ways, but typically in education it's referring to critical understanding of what you're reading or critical reading or close reading. Well, what, what critical literacy, it's important for these newer literacies, uh, just as important as, as it is for traditional literacy, but what transmedia storytelling can do is it can expand opportunities for teachers or even librarians to... Um, to focus on practicing critical literacy. So you're having multiple layers of meaning. Um, you're not just, you know, it's not text anymore, but it's text plus other uh, modalities or platforms. And so there are other examples, actually. With the franchises that I just talked about, you're, you're looking at several different platforms. So it could be a movie and a, or it could be a video game, but you're entering, these are each separate. But there are actually examples of transmedia storytelling where these are all integrated, fully integrated. And um, one, what I call a genre or a category of transmedia storytelling is interactive fiction. And this is where I think parents and teachers and librarians um, should pay attention because this is, this is digital, basically digital literature. So you have storytelling plus usually some sort of interactive element like gaming or gamification. There's a digital novel called Inanimate Alice. Are you familiar with that one? Yes, I am. So you have uh, animation, movie elements, uh, sound, which is really important there. You have text, so you're actually reading. And then you have gaming elements. So it's about a girl named Alice who grows up to be a game designer. In each episode, she's a little bit older, and the, the episodes themselves get more complex. So you add all those, and you're practicing them all together. And so uh, digital literature literature is just a new way of reading um, maybe a 21st century or modern approach to developing skills that we have always practiced in school. We're just practicing, practicing them in a 21st century way. I really like that because I think a lot of times teachers and even librarians, I, I know I have fallen into this trap, we, we kind of put more stock or more benefit on the traditional literacies and sometimes discount these other things like game literacy or media literacy. But in this world, in today's 21st century world, they really are so much more connected and so much more inner disciplinary, you know, multimodal in such a way that we it's becoming to the point that we can't separate them. Do you, do you see that as well? 
I see, and I and I really think that this form, I, I call um, like interactive fiction, which has actually been around. It predates the concept of transmedia, um, but it's um, I'm just putting it into that category because it's fiction that's interactive. Uh, there are there are actually examples of interactive fiction. There are full games like um, Colossal Cave Adventure. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Yes, I've heard of it. Yeah. Yes, from the 80s. Yeah. So that's actually reading. You're reading a lot in that game because it's just text. But um, I think with uh, interactive fiction, what we're doing, or with, we'll just talk about transmedia storytelling in general, is this is just the evolution of the fact that we have all these communication technologies available to us now. It's not, you know, there, there should be no resistance to this. It's just, we're just evolving, you know. We had print. I mean, print, print technologies are really old. They've been around for a long time, and that's great. And those that print uh, literacy is so important as a foundation for these other literacies. But we can't discount the fact that we just had technology is just taking off. And people are learning and experimenting with technology in new ways to create new forms of expression and literature is an example of that. So why not um, why not use that? Um, because it, it's engaging to students in may, a way that maybe they are not used to in the classroom or in the library, or you know they're being told to read, but they're not, but they're reluctant readers. This is a way to get them to read, and they are actually reading, but they're also practicing a bunch of other skills along the way. I. I think that's an important thing to remember, this sense of being able to practice some of these traditional literacies with reading, and particularly when we talk about fan fiction and other things, we're practicing writing uh, literacies. Yeah, so it really is a wonderful connection that in many ways just comes down to this foundational idea of telling a great story, but telling it through different medium. And the interesting thing to me is that different media will tell the story in a different way. So how do you see this this different media being able to bring different depth or interest to a story in a way that maybe just a print media or even a film media alone would not allow? Well, I think, first of all, um, we, we, we talk about or think about how people what, what they consume in their daily lives in, for, in terms of entertainment. We have a very visually rich world now that we're in. We have movies. Um, what games have become is almost movie-like. Um, the Internet, the, the information you access on the Internet is so visually rich now with images. So you have the entertainment, but there are also examples of transmedia storytelling that has a uh, more of an educational objective. Um, right now, PBS, for example, has the Ready to Learn initiative. It's uh, pbskids.org. Okay, so you have all these children's television programming um, that kids love. Sesame Street, Curious George, uh, Martha Speaks, uh, Cat in the Hat. And then you can go online, and there are games and activities and um, parent resources to get kids practicing those skills, some literacy skills. And the PBS Kids Ready to Learn initiative has an educational objective to improve um, early literacy skills. And they're, they're really targeting these, um, some of the at-risk children who maybe don't have access to high-quality 
um, pre-K education. But what they've done, there's research on it, and they found that it's actually been very effective. So children from a young age now are consuming transmedia. And, and then you have um, 39 Clues. So you have the books, but Scholastic also has a website dedicated to some games and other activities related to the books. It's something for a kid who maybe doesn't like to read. You can introduce them to a series like 39 Clues or Infinity Ring or one of these other series through these other avenues, like through a game or through uh, like a video or something like that, and then get them. They might be more motivated to read that way, the actual book. Um, there's also this new genre, it's doc games or documentary game. I guess uh, this younger generation doesn't watch documentaries <laughs> the way they used to. So they're trying to come up with new ways to engage audience uh, with documentaries. Um, a game called Never Alone, telling the story of the Alaskan natives. It's a way to preserve their culture and their lore. Uh, and it was really a collaborative process between the Inupiat, like elders and storytellers, with game producers to create this beautiful game called Never Alone. And they're actually using it in um, some curriculum, like in Alaska for sure, and maybe some other classrooms across the United States, to teach children about this culture. So there is a, um, it's a game, but it also has an educational objective to it. So we're seeing more with transmedia that is moving into the educational realm, not necessarily being developed as an educational tool per se, but has an educational objective. This is just amazing to me how rich and deep this idea of transmedia and transmedia storytelling is and and, and how it kind of has fundamentally changed our world and the way we interact with it. How has this kind of changed your perceptions as a librarian kind of in your professional context? What what has this development of this, I hate to say new because it's not necessarily quite new, or this technological innovation that's come to storytelling, how has that changed your professional outlook or your professional approach to what you do in your in your librarianship? Well, I think, first of all, it's changed the way I look at reading. I don't see reading now as just reading books. Uh, we read everything. I mean, you're reading everything in your environment. A baby reads a mother's face. I mean, you start reading before you can actually start reading words. So we're reading body language and we're reading, I mean, it just changes your your outlook on what reading is and what literacy is. Um, the other thing is that it's given me new avenues. And what I do now is, um, you know, teach librarians. So I'm kind of becoming a librarian educator. I start a doctoral program in about a month. So I'll be, I will truly be a librarian educator. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> thank you. But it's changing the way I talk to librarians and even teachers, because I've done some teacher education, too, on how they can get kids reading. Um, gaming is a big part of transmedia storytelling. It's not in all transmedia storytelling projects, but in many of them, it's, a, it's such an easy interactive element. Gaming is so important. Let, put gaming in the library. Let kids play games. Let kids watch movies then you can get them connected to reading through those other avenues. Um, 
forcing kids to read books when they're reluctant readers, and there may be a dozen different reasons why kids don't read or they don't like to read. So maybe they just can't sit still, or maybe there's nothing that interests them. But if you can get them through another avenue, whether it's gaming or movies, it's like a starting point. It's a way to get them to read. Uh, And, you know, I don't want to discount reading, traditional reading, because that's just as important as ever. You know, the more we read, the better we get at it. So... And that's a foundation for these other literacies anyway, being able to read. So it's just a way to connect literacy um, beyond books. I I love that because I totally agree that this really just expands our conception of literacy. As we kind of close up our conversation today, what would you like, what is that one thing that you would like to tell the parents or concerned adults out there that are listening to our show about this concept of transmedia storytelling? What is, what is the takeaway that they, they should have to help them uh, understand what impact or what uh, benefit this, this wonderful new world of storytelling has for their kids? Well, first of all, I think parents need to know that your kids are already consuming transmedia. Um, Much of what's popular now, um, whether it's popular fiction or like PBS Ready to Learn uh, or the uh, pbskids.org that I talked about earlier, is transmedia. So they are consuming transmedia. When they watch Sesame Street and then they play with the toys and and they act out and they do role play, that's transmedia. They're they're actually practicing what we could call multimodal literacy that way. Um, when they are reading series like 39 Clues, or uh, there's t- tons of series out, Hunger Games, Harry Potter, uh, Minecraft even, take advantage of that. I think parents need to just take advantage of that. If your kids aren't reading but you want them to read and you know that that's important for them, get them connected to reading through these other avenues, just like teachers and librarians. Um, so just know that the, it's, our, it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous now almost. I mean, even with Pokemon Go. So you love playing that game with your kid, well, go to the library and get some Pokemon books. That's just the way to do it. You, you can connect your, your children to reading through so many avenues that are not reading. Um, I guess that's the biggest message I want to send to parents. Characters, stories that they love, um, you know, whether it's television or movies or video games or merchandise or Pokemon or something else, there's probably a book out there uh, that you can get them to read that's part of this franchise that they love so much. That's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Amanda. It has been a delight talking to you today. I really appreciate your advocacy and and helping librarians and parents and educators learn all about this great grand new world. And I'm excited for your new adventures as you as you begin this new leg of your studies. That's very exciting. <laughs> Thank you. That was Rachel Wadham and librarian and author Amanda Hovius talking about the vibrant world of transmedia storytelling. You're listening to Worlds Awaiting. Next, Sarai Clemente and Laura Johnson, BYU students studying elementary education and Spanish dual immersion, review a picture book entitled Cyrano by Ty Mark Lesen. This book, written in Spanish, is based on the French classic Cyrano de Bergerac by Edmond Rostat. Here's Sarai and Laura. Now this book is a historical fiction. It's based on a story you might have heard, Cyrano de Bergerac. It's originally by Edmond Rostin and was a French play. This book, however, is written in Spanish. It's a picture book, and we're going to tell you just a little bit about it. Cyrano has an incredibly large nose. 
So much so that when it rains, his mustache doesn't even get wet. His nose causes some social issues for him throughout his life. Um, but despite that, he's a pretty good poet. He falls in love with his cousin Roxana, who is extremely pretty. And the only problem is, besides the fact that she's his cousin, Roxana is in love with a man named Christian. Christian happens to be, as the book literally says, very stupid. But he had teeth, which set him apart from the other men. So he had that going for him. And Christian also loved Roxana. Knowing that he was lacking in the brains department, he was not sure how to confess his love to Roxana. Cyrano, knowing of the love between the two, decided to help Christian. He knew that Roxana loved poems, and Christian couldn't rhyme to save his life. So Cyrano composed poems for Roxana and gave them to Christian. Roxana fell in love with the poems, and Christian, whom she thought wrote them, so they got married. However, Christian and Cyrano were both sent to war pretty soon after. What kept Cyrano going in war was writing these letters to Roxana. From the battlefield, he wrote love letters and signed them as Christian. Roxana was so enamored by the letters that she decided to come visit her husband in the battlefield. Christian then realized that Roxana was actually in love with the poetry, which was not written by him. So he went to the battlefield and was killed. Roxana, obviously, was crushed. Cyrano was there and consoled her as best he could. Years went by and Roxana was still devastated and Cyrano's nose got wrinkly. And you'll have to read the book to figure out what happens at the end. So why you should read this book, there are several reasons for that to happen. First is it's a perfect book for a dual immersion setting. So if your kids are in dual immersion classroom, this is a great book to help them practice outside of the school. Also, if you are teaching your, your kids Spanish, um, this is perfect setting to you. The author, in his casual sarcasm, defines words that may be unknown to the reader. Um, and even me, being a Spanish speaker, there were some words that I didn't even know. So it was a great tool. And also, this lifts the bar burden from teachers and parents who may not know the word either. Um, it's also perfect for native Spanish speakers like myself. I really enjoyed reading this book. And even though it was for kids, I, it was just great to have this opportunity to read the book. In addition, this is a story that kids can relate to. It's all about being different, finding where you belong, being accepted and finding those that you love. And like said, I mentioned, it's very entertaining. Adult or child, you will laugh out loud at several parts in this book. And even though it's sad, the humor is intertwined within the story. And the author just has this way of throwing in funny things when you least expect it. The more we read this book, the more we loved it and the more we laughed out loud. As far as age group goes, probably third or fourth grade or above is what age you want to have reading this book, but it just depends on your students or your child's Spanish level. One of the things that we loved the most about this book were the pictures. The pictures are gorgeous. The bright colors contrast with the darker backgrounds. The detail and pattern draw you in. It's just that the story is placed in an oriental setting with French undertones, providing contrast with the original play. 
this theme goes well with the humorous tone of the author. And also the characters also appear oriental, yet different. Yeah, this book is so multicultural. It's written in Spanish, based in an oriental setting, and based on a French play. So it really sounds odd, but it just makes a weird kind of sense when you read the book that everything just flows together. So all in all, we feel that like the sense of humor, the language, the pictures, the Spanish, the diversity are all reasons to have this book as an integral part of your home or classroom library. That was BYU elementary education students in the Spanish Dual Immersion Program, Sarai Clemente and Laura Johnson, reviewing Cyrano by Ty Mark Lassin. Sarai and Laura were a part of our host Rachel Wadham's children's literature class at BYU. They and their classmates had an opportunity to record some book reviews as part of a class assignment. These reviews are available on the World's Awaiting page on byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.